This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, holy ones by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you or among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So last week we started on the, um, the uh, salutation... And just by way of reminder, because we didn't, we didn't finish last week, um, Paul identifies himself and then Sosthenes, we talked about, about that. But then he addresses it to the church of God, which is in Corinth. And it, when, when, when we think about this address, we have to remember that, that what Paul is doing is he is, um, he's really reminding these Corinthians who they are. They are the church, the assembly of Yahweh, which is, it, which exists in Corinth. And then he says something that might seem somewhat um, uh, a little difficult for us to embrace, and that is he, call, he says that they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And, of course, the apostle is going to be dealing with all kinds of problems in this church, and many of those problems are going to be sin problems, and yet he tells them that they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And, and, and I would just remind you that, I mean, first of all, as I noted last week, it's perfect tense. The idea is it's a completed act with abiding Results and it and it echoes that Old Testament language of Israel, which was supposed to be a holy people, and the idea is is that these Corinthian believers uh, have actually been set apart by God as God's holy people for God's holy purpose. It, 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 what, what Paul's referring to here is uh, is not what we would call progressive sanctification, because in fact, in, in those terms, the Corinthians really were, were not very stellar, but he's talking about what we could call definitive sanctification, that sanctification that happens by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, for Paul, 
to be set apart because you're in union with Jesus Christ most definitely will denote a certain kind of lifestyle for the believer, a life of holiness, of heart, and of conduct. But this is not what Paul is, is emphasizing so much right here as he is, in, in a real sense, reminding them who they are and what God has done for them. It's one of the things that we need to uh, constantly remind ourselves of. Jerry Bridges has a, has a, a little saying that we need, to, we need to frequently preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to frequently remind ourselves of what God has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ, what he has accomplished for us, what he has made us, so that in a real sense, the Christian life is, is a life of increasingly and progressively becoming what we already are in Christ. And so then the apostle says, he says, with all those calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. And uh, this, is, this is actually unique in all of Paul's salutations. Uh, he may say something like, uh, with the overseers and deacons or things like that, but there's, there's no place where he actually so underscores, um, uh, in a sense, the rest of the Christian community universally in a salutation like he does here. And so when he says, with all those, I take that probably to be connected with uh, sanctified. And so Paul is addressing it to them and then saying that you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, but you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus with all those who who have called upon his name in every place, their Lord and Hours. In other words, he's reminding them that the church is much bigger than just them. You know, it's, it's, it's oftentimes um, very easy for us to become so focused on ourselves and on our own church and on what's happening within our own church family that sometimes we forget that there is actually a church that is all throughout God's world. Anthony Thistleton says quite wonderfully, he says, too often they, that is the Corinthians, we probably throw ourselves in there too, seem to imagine that they're the only pebble on the beach. They think they can live, they think that they can live and sink or swim without regard to the traditions or practices of other Christians in other places. And so what Paul is doing is he's actually subtly refuting their, their very self-centered view of their own importance. He's actually reminding them, is, is sort of trying to undermine this sense of their own superior attitude. One commentator says, Paul sounds this universal note that undermines their independent streak and their egotism. Later in this same epistle, Paul's going to have to say, do you actually think the word of God originated with you? The Corinthians had an idea that they were, in a sense, the the beginning and the end of all Christianity, that it existed within their own little vacuum. And uh, Paul is reminding them that it is not true, that there are many who have called upon his name, that is, believers 
who have put their trust in Christ, who proclaim Him, who worship Him. And then Paul says, their Lord and ours. And so he cuts, he cuts them off from a state of seeing themselves as, um, as the only ones. He cuts them off from, from having uh, the priority simply upon themselves and reminds them that there are believers all throughout this world and they're all sanctified right along with you. Now, you can't, you can't miss this little expression, by the way, at the end here where he says, um, their Lord and ours. The chief religion in Corinth was the imperial cult. The imperial cult, which existed throughout the entire Roman Empire, had certain centers of significance and importance. Corinth was one of those. And of course, in the imperial cult, who is Lord? Caesar is Lord. And in fact, um, you know, the Romans were great, great pluralists and multiculturalists. They didn't really care if you had other religions as long as you, in a sense, took the pinch of incense, threw it on the fire, and proclaimed Caesar is Lord. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in a way that is uh, really not so subtle, is making a proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord of those who believe. And so Paul's trying to undermine their self-centeredness, their own sense of importance, their own sense of uh, that we're the, the, the beginning, middle, and end. There's, a, there's an apocryphal story of a man who um, went to heaven and when, uh, when St. Peter, you know it's apocryphal when St. Peter meets you at the gate. St. Peter meets him at the gate and ushers him in and starts to show him around. And, and uh, there are all these Christians mingling and praising God. And then off in the corner, there's this area that's walled off. And there's laughter and, and uh, all kinds of conversation going on. And, and um, the man asks St. Peter, he says, well, who, who's that over there? And he says, well, those are the Missouri Synod Lutherans. They think they're the only ones who are here. Now, there's a sense in which sometimes we, we have that, that we're like the only ones going to heaven. Okay? And the fact is, is that everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord belongs to him. And um, there was a, a, a self-centered church leader who dropped in on Charles Spurgeon one day, asked to see if old Charles, and the maid came back and told the man that he was going to have to wait as Mr. Spurgeon was quite busy. The man insisted that the maid turn around and go back to Spurgeon and tell Mr. Spurgeon that I am the messenger of the Lord. The maid went and told Spurgeon and came back out and she said, Mr. Spurgeon regrets that he cannot see you right now since he is in since he is currently engaged with the Lord. And so the Corinthians have this tremendous sense of self-importance, and Paul's going to knock it right out of them. Then verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the prayer, which is actually very common in, in all of Paul's uh, letters, is uh, part of the um, uh, structure of Greek letters, um, now, in, in Greek letters, if, uh, if you are 
going to say grace to you. You would say karain, which would actually just be like greetings. Well, what Paul does is he turns that from karain, which means greetings, to charis, which means grace. Grace to you, and then he says, and peace. And so what he's doing is he's, he's actually expressing a prayer, really. Uh, some commentators point out that this is what is sometimes called a speech act, and that is he's doing something more than just giving information, but rather he's actually offering prayer on their behalf, which will, in fact, convey grace and peace to them. And so Paul takes the typical Greek greeting and then crafts it to be a Christianized greeting, grace. Grace being God's favor, not just to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. And then peace, which of course then is the Jewish greeting, meaning shalom. And uh, the idea of shalom is well-being and wholeness. And so the apostle says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this, the apostle identifies that grace comes from God through Jesus Christ, the grace of God which is manifest in the forgiveness of our sins, in justification by faith, in reconciliation, in adoption. In other words, in all of the redemptive benefits that come to us, they all come to us by the grace of God through the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's it's actually very difficult to maintain a position of pride and self-importance and talking about grace at the same time. Because those, those things are mutually exclusive. And as soon as we begin to elevate ourselves, we begin to forget the grace of God. Because if, if it were not for the grace of God, of course, all of us would be under condemnation on our way to eternal punishment. And so the grace of God comes to us, and it comes to us as ill-deserving people. And when we start to grab a hold of that, it actually will humble us. And so we have grace from God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and peace. And so this peace, which by the way is not um, you know, some peaceful, easy feeling but rather it's shalom. And and, and it's not even just simply the cessation of hostility. We think, for instance, um, you know, when Japan signed the peace treaty with the U.S. after the war in the Pacific, it was a cessation of hostilities. Well, the peace that we're talking about here is actually far greater than just a mere cessation of hostility between us and God. The Bible teaches us clearly that we come into this world as God's enemies and the peace that is secured for us is a peace that comes through the blood of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and it is not just simply bringing an end to the enmity between us and God. It is actually a reconciling peace so that we now have God's good favor and and um, positive disposition towards us because of Christ. And so in this little thing, remember I said last week, no throwaway phrases for Paul, right? So grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the peace comes through the atoning work of Christ. So Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nice summary of Paul's theology all the time. And yet, even though he says it in just about every epistle, there's something that is peculiarly relevant to these Corinthians. They have forgotten grace, and they aren't living out much of that peace. And so what do they need more than anything else? They need the grace that comes from God our Father and the peace that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as far as the salutation goes, Paul is addressing issues really that are already, um, uh, in a sense, going to be brought up later. And the first thing is the identity of the church. The identity of the church. And so the church belongs to God. Its members have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Its members are called holy ones or saints. And the church has one Lord, which is Jesus Christ. And it's both universal and local. And we all belong to each other. It's exactly what they need to hear. And that's how Paul starts out. Now, the next part, 4 through 9, is the thanksgiving. Now, the thanksgiving... Has, has a distinct purpose. And we're going to talk about the purpose of Thanksgiving just for a second. In typical Greek letters, there was actually a section that was similar to this Pauline Thanksgiving. But the uh, Greek letter was um, oftentimes, the Thanksgiving was often used to uh, try to secure sort of a favorable attitude towards the person writing the letter. In other words, the thanksgiving typically was was, was pretty flowery and used to kind of butter up the person that was receiving the letter so they would be, um, you know, more open to what the person has to say. And, you know, I mean, we we get this all the time, right? I... um, Thankfully, haven't had one of these for a number of years, but I used to get an email from a certain person, and it would always start off with, um, Dearest Pastor, I am so thankful to God for you and for your faithful ministry. I was so blessed by Sunday's sermon, blah, 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 blah. And then once that brief paragraph was done, then came all the ways he was going to straighten me out, (laughs) and sometimes not very kindly. And so, you know, it's a flattery, right? You're just buttering the person up so that they go, oh, this is great, and then you can wham, and that's that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying, oh, you awesome Corinthians, I love you guys so much. I'm just, I'm just giddy every time I think about you. Rather, Paul's thanksgiving is going to be intensely theological and intensely pastoral. Now, it is positive to be sure, right? And, and, and Paul is going to be affirming of the Corinthians. And I would, I would suggest that Paul's affirmation, his thanksgiving for the Corinthians, is first of all, sincere. I don't think that Paul is just, you know, can't you say something nice, Paul? Yeah, let me think, let me think. Uh, 
And then he just like just kind of works himself up into saying something nice, you know, because Sosthenes is standing there saying, now, you know, Paul, remember what your mom said. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. All right. And uh, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is actually genuinely thankful for the Corinthians. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he is also going to make a number of points in this thanksgiving. In other words, in the first Corinthians thanksgiving, there, are, there is this pastoral apostolic thanks, and there's also going to be some, um, some instruction in the thanksgiving. Paul's going to remind them of some things. In other words, he is going to, in the thanksgiving, kind of hopefully start to redirect some of their focus. Because they really had gotten off track. And so here's Paul. And so the thanksgiving is sincere and instructional. And what is the focus of of the thanksgiving? Well, notice this. Verse 4. I thank my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you. Notice in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, For you have been enriched in every way in Him, in Him, in who? In, In Christ, all right? In Christ Jesus, in all your speech and in every, all kinds of knowledge, just as the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will, he who, our Lord Jesus Christ, will strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in verses 4 to 9, the apostle refers to Jesus eight times. Eight times. Either directly by name or by pronoun, eight times he is referring to Christ. And what he is doing is he is, he is um, focusing the Corinthians on where their focus really needs to be. You know, one of the, one of the best things for somebody that's focused on themselves is, is, is not necessarily just to say, stop focusing on yourself. But rather to say, you need to focus on Christ. You need to turn your eyes to Christ. You need to turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? And look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what, that's what the preaching and the teaching of God's word is all about. It is to get us to focus on Christ. So if you leave after a sermon and you say, that was a good sermon, okay, that's fine. But if you say, hallelujah, what a savior, then the grace of God has triumphed. The other focus, notice in this, I thank, verse 4, I thank my God 
for you because of the what? The grace of God which was given to you in Christ. And then notice verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called. And so Christ fills the entirety of the thanksgiving, but it is the grace of God and the faithfulness of God which are bookends for the thanksgiving. And so the apostle is driving them to actually focus upon the Lord Jesus and upon the grace of God. There's something missing, though. There's actually probably a couple of things missing. You compare this to some of Paul's other um, other uh, uh, thanksgivings, and you start to realize that there's, for instance, no mention of love. And yet Paul oftentimes thanks God for the love that exists among the church. There's also, interestingly enough, even though there's a, there is a thanksgiving for gifts that are in, in both speech and knowledge, notice what else is missing that you might think would be connected with gifts. That is, there's no thanksgiving for their service, for their work. And yet, you look at some of Paul's other thanksgivings and he thanks God for, let's say, the Thessalonians' labor of love. So not only is what what Paul say important, but what he leaves out is is, is probably somewhat of an indictment itself as well. And so let's take a look at this. Paul says, I thank my God always for you. The verb for I thank is eucharisteo. We get um, the word eucharist from that. And uh, Paul is always using this verb. He loves, uh, Paul, Paul was an incredibly thankful person, wasn't he? You read Paul's letters and he is always thanking God for something. In other words, he, he lived out his admon- admonition to in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You ever notice uh, something about people that are thankful? Thankful people are not complaining people. Thankful people are not bitter people. Thankful people are typically joyful people. There is something about gratitude gripping our hearts that prevents us from being cranky complainers. So I thank my God, and then notice always. In other words, I take this to mean not that 24-7 Paul was going around going, thank you God for the Corinthians, thank you God for the Corinthians, thank you God for the Corinthians. But always probably has the idea that at every opportunity and regularly as a course of habit, Now, one thing that I I am actually very interested in, and we won't find out until we get to heaven, I want to find out what the Apostle Paul's prayer life 
actually looked like on a day-in, day-out basis. Because if you take all the times where he says, I thank God upon my every remembrance of you, I thank God for you always, you have to realize that Paul must have spent a substantial amount of time every day in his prayer time giving thanks to God. For you. <laughs> For who? For the rascally Corinthians. This is, this, is, this is what actually gripped me today more than anything else is this. I thank my God always for you. Now, is Paul going to deal with problems with this church? And the answer is yes. Is Paul going to deal with some difficult people? And the answer is yes. And yet he turns around and he says, I thank God always for you. One commentator says, he says, not only the churches which bring him unmixed joy, such as the Philippians, invite regular thanksgiving on Paul's part, but even troublesome Corinth. For the very existence of their faith as Christians outweighs any personal inconvenience, disappointment, or anguish, which their less than appropriate attitudes and at times lifestyle also brings. Yeah, that, that, that last sentence is, is, is so good. Paul can actually just say, you know what? I really do honestly, sincerely give thanks to God for you. And Thistleton is what he's saying is, is because the, the very fact that they're Christians, the very fact that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ outweighs any personal inconvenience that Paul may have suffered from them or any personal disappointment or any anguish. In other words, Paul actually had a perspective that looked beyond their failures and was able to give thanks for them because they, they were in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul actually saw the Corinthians as a gift from God. He is sincerely paying tribute to God for what he has done in the Corinthians and what he will do for the Corinthians. Paul is confident That God is going to continue to work. Why? Because he knows that these people belong to Christ. Are they arrogant? Yes. Are they, do they have attitudes of superiority because of their gifts? The answer is yes. Have they begun to, uh, have the cross eclipsed from their, from their perspective? And the answer is yes. If you love somebody, it doesn't mean that they may not stand in need of correction at times. But you can love somebody and rejoice and thank God for them, even when there are disagreements, even when there are problems. Gordon Fee says, he notes that Paul's ability to give thanks for these Christians probably says much more about his own character. To delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom he feels compelled to disagree, is sure evidence of one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercies. I love that. I love that. People aren't always going to be what you want them to be. 
I mean, as a parent, don't you know? <laughs> they, they don't always turn out exactly the way that you think they should. They don't always do the things that you want them to do. This goes for people in church, right? People that we have differences with. And Paul could say, you know what? I thank God for you. We'll deal with the differences. We'll deal with the issues. But I thank God for you. I love you. And this, this shows, in a sense... Paul's awareness that he really was a recipient of God's mercy. You know, there's something inside of us that should say, um, you know what, I can be patient with you because here's one thing I know for sure, and that is that God has been patient with me. Right? I will tell you that, that Ariel is much better at this attitude than I am. Okay? Much better. And I get impatient and I get irritable and I get frustrated, especially as I think of, of um, certain people in my life. And she's like, you know what, honey? We've got to be patient. God's patient with us. We can be patient with them. So true. So true. <laughs> if God treated me the way that I sometimes want to treat other people, he'd have sliced me and diced me and left me for dead a long time ago. And so Paul says, I thank my God always for you upon, uh, for the grace, and then notice this, the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. Now he's already said grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, but now he's actually specifically giving thanks to God for the grace which was given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus, the grace of God which was given to you. Now, do you think this is going to be a big theme throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians? The answer is a resounding yes. This is a huge theme throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. The the Corinthians are forgetting about grace. And in fact, Paul's going to say in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not first receive, i.e. by grace? And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't? And so Paul is going to remind them that God has given you grace in Christ Jesus. Uh, Garland notes, he says, this reference to God's grace given to them undercuts any egocentric pride in their spiritual achievements. Just like you can't be a thankful person and be a complainer, You can't be a person that's painfully aware of the grace of God and then be proud about your achievements. Right? In fact, the apostle is going to remind them later in chapter 15 when he's talking about his own apostleship. He's going to tell them he actually worked harder than any of the other apostles. That sounds like he's bragging. But then he turns around and right away says, but yet not me, but the grace of God, which was in me. And his grace did not prove in vain. 
And so the Corinthians need to be reminded so much of the grace that has been given to them in Christ Jesus. Now, again, notice, not only is 4 through 9 just filled uh, with, with the mention of Christ, but there is a, a richness to the theological perception here in the thanksgiving. So it's grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. So here's the Corinthians, and they are, they are completely enamored with, with being, quote, spiritual. They're enamored with being wise. They're enamored with being knowledgeable. They're enamored with being powerful. They are the spiritual ones, and they have completely eclipsed the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to do his best to remind them of the importance of being a truly Christ-centered person. There are things that should um, scare us a little bit. Sometimes, for instance, somebody becomes a Christian and then they start hearing about all of these other aspects to the Christian life, the, the deeper things of God. And whether it has to do with some second work of grace by the Holy Spirit or some sort of deeper experience or higher life, there is this, there is this constant threat to Christians that somehow they look at Christ as the starting point from which they then move on. And let me tell you, there is nothing beyond our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing deeper than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing above him. There is nothing beyond him. He is it. And so, how do you grow? How do you experience the so-called deep things of God? How do you become mature? How do you grow spiritually? And the answer is not by going beyond Christ because there is no beyond Christ, but going deeper into Christ coming to a more and more realization of how the cross actually shapes our Christian life. So the gospel comes to us, and the message of the cross tells us how to belong to God and have our sins forgiven, but then Christian growth looks like this. I come again to the cross to see how it shapes the totality of my Christian life. One way or another, I am a Christ-centered, cross-centered Christian. I don't get beyond it. Now, Paul's going to go on. He says, because of the grace which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. Now, the, the, the terminology you were enriched in him, enriched, might, might be um, the Corinthians word. I think that that might be the case because of the way Paul uses it in chapter 4 and verse 8 where it looks like this was a claim or a boast of the Corinthians. Um, But here, Paul uses it, in a sense, positively to refer to their own 
experience of, of Christ. And so, so that in everything you were enriched in him. And um, what Paul's doing is he's reminding them of that, of, of that initial uh, experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ in which they were enriched in Christ. And then notice what Paul does. He says, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, some people think that Paul's being a little sarcastic because guess what the Corinthians are going to boast about? Two things. Gifts of speech and gifts of knowledge. These, um, by the way, I would say that these are what we would call qualitative adjectives in all speech. I don't think he means in every single act of speech, but the idea is, is in all sorts of speech. Uh, the same thing with knowledge, all kinds of knowledge. So not quantitative. Paul's not saying you know everything. <laughs> if they knew everything, guess what he wouldn't have to do? He wouldn't have to write First Corinthians. Okay? But in all speech, the idea is probably prophecy, tongues, preaching, Knowledge probably overlaps with the idea of wisdom, meaning insight, understanding. And so, again, notice, notice what they haven't been enriched in. The most important thing, love. In fact, Paul's going to say, knowledge is good. Okay? Knowledge is good. But love is better. In fact, you could have all knowledge and know all mysteries, and yet if you don't have love, you're a zero. And so here's Paul, and he's 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 giving thanks for their gifts. And some people think, well, you know what? I mean, Paul's gonna then be critical of them later, but I would I would say that um Paul is legitimately, sincerely giving thanks for the gifts that were prized by the Corinthians. And notice, Paul's not criticizing the gifts themselves. What he will criticize later will be their attitudes towards the gifts and their abuses of the gifts. That's what Paul's going to criticize. And so Paul sees these gifts as legitimate gifts that are operating among the Corinthians, but he also sees them as gifts that are being abused and gifts that have the wrong attitudes attached to them, but he still is able to give thanks. And in a a sense, not only is the thanksgiving for the speech and knowledge gifts uh, sincere, but there's also uh, probably a not so subtle uh, 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 emphasis by what Paul doesn't give thanks for at this point. And then Paul says this, just as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of Christ is the testimony which is about Christ, which I take that to mean that the the Spirit's testimony to Christ that comes through the gospel. So what Paul is, is actually thanking God for is that there was a gospel witness that had been established among the Corinthians. 
Calvin put it like this, God set his seal to the truth of his gospel among the Corinthians. And so Paul goes and he preaches the testimony of Christ. That is, he preaches Christ, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. The Corinthians believe that message by the grace of God, and this testimony to Christ, uh, in a sense, awakens them, and as a result, God creates the Corinthian church, which now is, as it were, a testimony to Christ in their community. And Paul's thankful for that. He's thankful for that. Now, The thing that is striking is that Paul is genuinely thankful for these people who are pretty messed up. It reminded me of a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. Actually, I'd like to read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to do that. Bonhoeffer says this, he says, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read the next paragraph, but not gladly. This applies in a special way to the complaints often heard from pastors and zealous members about their congregations. A pastor should not complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and men. When a person becomes alienated from a Christian community in which he has been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he had better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that should be shattered by God. We ought to give thanks to God for our church family. There are going to be some people that it's very easy for you to give thanks for. They bless you, they encourage you, you just, you just love them. You gravitate towards them. What Paul is teaching us is we give thanks for everybody in God's family. The ones that are a blessing to us and the ones that challenge us. He's reminding us that we need to give thanks for the ones that that, uh, that we like and, and love to be around and to give thanks for the ones that are difficult. I don't know about you, but I find myself guilty 
of being thankful for the people that I like and not being overly thankful for the people that typically rub me the wrong way. And I think Paul would want us to say, you know that person that rubs you the wrong way? That person's sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for that person just as much as he died for you. That person loves the same Lord that you love. Sometimes we can become so critical that we even begin to question people's faith and because they're not exactly the kind of Christian that we think they ought to be, then we start to wonder whether they're even a Christian at all. And I think the Apostle Paul would tell us, you need to stop that. You need to stop that. If I love them enough to send my son for them, you can be patient, you can love them. You can give thanks for them. And so the next time, the next time that somebody in the body of Christ seems like a Corinthian to you, say, I thank God for the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And you don't need to qualify and say, I wish you'd show more of that grace. (laughs) I wish you'd grow a little bit more in that grace. If that's what you think, then pray for that person. But how we ought to give thanks to God for the people of God, all different ones. And in doing that, we demonstrate an apostolic love for the unity of the church. Amen. Any questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, outbursts, letters to the editor? Good, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for for this word. We thank you that you remind us to be thankful people even when there are things we could complain about. Father, we pray that we would all learn this lesson. Lord, it's a tough one. It's a challenging one. Father, we pray that we would take it to heart. Father, remind us that we're not our brother's accuser. Remind us that they have a Savior, an advocate with you. Father, we thank you that we have been sanctified with all of those who call upon your name and all of those who claim Jesus as Lord. Father, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.